بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله it's nice to uh, be in this masjid again nice to meet uh, many vaguely familiar faces and uh, and a few well-known uh, faces uh, may Allah SWT bless you all bless the community bless the uh, organizers uh, the Imams of the of the masjid uh, for organizing uh, this particular talk and also to Sheikh Salim Dr. Salim uh, who is uh, ever concerned especially in this area uh, if, mashallah, if you ever want to see a person kind of roll up their sleeves and really be concerned with delivering knowledge to the people in this kind of wider Red Bridge area, uh, mashallah, then uh, Dr. Salim, Allah has given him uh, a, a fadl. Uh, probably you won't like me saying so, but he, Allah has given him a fadl in this, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, and the more that uh, we appreciate uh, those people that Allah puts around us, and the more we can aid and assist them, the better our personal journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, tasawwuf, a brief introduction, a big word, tasawwuf, and it's going to be a brief introduction. So, uh, hands up who has no idea what tasawwuf is. What's this foreign word? MashaAllah, very honest, one or two hands up. Okay, a few more hands up after second thoughts, mashallah. If I put my hand up, that would really surprise you, right? <clears throat> um, okay, hands up. Those of you who kind of know Tasawwuf, kind of in English we call Tasawwuf what? Uh, spirituality, how else is Tasawwuf translated into English? What's the most popular term? Meditation, Meditation perhaps, uh, something else. Sufism. Who's heard of the word Sufism and Sufis? So hands up those of you who've heard of the word Sufism and Sufis and uh, anytime you hear it like kind of alarm bells go off in your head. Like uh, you start looking around thinking how do I get out of here? <laughs> hands up when you hear the word Sufi and Sufis that you think oh this is probably going to be quite comfortable and quite enlightening. Hands up who feels comfortable. So a few of you. Hands up who's not sure. Like, uh, well, I've heard some things which are really good, but I've heard some things which, you know, makes me want to run away. Okay, so a few confused souls. Okay, so I'm going to try to <laughs> clarify as best as I can. Um, in the early 80s, 83, 84, when I was trying to learn my Islam in a very unscholarly way, just from people who weren't scholars, uh, we were told, and I firmly believed, I didn't have any other reason not to believe, that there are dodgy Muslims around, and you'll find no one more dodgy than Sufis. So every time you hear this word Sufi and Sufism or Tasawwuf, 
go the other way, run the other way. And rightly or wrongly, I became a fast runner. In those days, I used to run. I mean, not literally, metaphorically. When someone said there was, I was really upset. I, I'll tell you what, one of my teachers in, in, in Madrasa, in Leytonstone Mosque, um, had a good look, good connection, relationship with him as we were growing up. I'm like 18, 19. And then someone said that he's a Sufi. And one day in the khutbah, I heard him say, one of the Sufis said, he didn't say, I am a Sufi, but he said, one of the Sufis said, and I remember I was distressed. I was really distressed. I was thinking how to approach him after. Maybe I can never approach him. My relationship with him, I don't know, is it shattered? Such are the traumas that uh, the term and the concept can cause. And even today amongst Muslims, if one is not blessed, unblessed to go on social media, right? You will see the intra-Muslim wars about Sufis. Okay, uh, all sorts of insults and all sorts of accusations being held this way and being held that way. And not just against ordinary people, ordinary Muslims against ordinary Muslims, but even sometimes against scholars. Ordinary Muslims saying things about scholars, Muslim scholars who are known to be Imams by all other scholars in our history. So it's something that is a bit difficult to tackle. And those of you who kind of know more or less what the soul wolf is about will un probably understand why. So a good place to start would be simply let's leave names. Let's leave Sufi, let's leave Salafi, let's leave the soul wolf, let's leave, leave this, let's leave that. Let's just try to do concepts. Because if we get the concept, then the name doesn't really matter, right? So I could say, I can say, I am one of the people of truth. And then I can print a t-shirt, right? With Abu Ali as one of the people of truth on it. And then I can pass out my t-shirts to you and you can join my club. And then we can all be part of the people of truth. <clears throat> but that won't make us people of truth. <clears throat> what will make us people of truth is if our beliefs, our practices, inwardly and outwardly, conform to haq, the truth, which in this case for Muslims is revelation. The name doesn't matter in that sense. What counts are the beliefs and the inward and outward actions or practices. That will define whether we are upon truth or not. And that's why the scholars say, Al-ibra bil-haqaiq wal-ma'ani la bi-al-fadi wal-mabani. Okay, our scholars say, the lesson, what, what should be considered or taken into consideration is haqaiq wal-ma'ani, are the realities and the correct meanings not al-fadi wal-mabani, not just the terms and the names. So I'd like to approach this uh, topic from exactly that, that qa'idah, that rule or that uh, maxim or principle. That let's leave the word 
to solve. Let's leave the word Sufi, let's leave everything and let's try to just do a bit of concept, meaning, and then after that, I would like to quote some passages from a famous scholar called Ibn Taymiyyah, one of the scholars of the 8th century from Syria, 8th century Islam, uh, to actually maybe help further understand whether this issue of tasawwuf or Sufism, whatever it means, is part of Islam or not part of Islam, whether we need to have alarm bells ringing or not. And, I, and if you don't already know, I'll explain later on, inshallah, if I remember, why I'm going to pick on uh, this Imam Ibn Taymiyyah rather than, you know, a hundred other scholars or several hundred scholars that we could pick on. Okay, so that's inshallah ta'ala how I intend bi'ithinillah wa billahi tawfiq. So, okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, A'udhu billahi min shaitanir rajeem, fafirru ilallah, flee to Allah, run back to Allah, go to Allah, hasten to Allah. Whatever is distressing you and you're running away from that, run to Allah. Okay. Sometimes we run to something because something else is frightening us. So we're running away from something and we're running to protection. But fafirru ilallah, running away from something, could be we're running away from woes and distress, not something that really frightens us but kind of saddens us or distresses, distresses us and we flee to something that comforts us. We rush into Layla, Majnoon rushes into the arms of Layla. The lover rushes, Fafirru or Fafirru al-Habib, rushing towards the one you love. So when Allah Jalla Jalaluhu says, Fafirru ilallah, Flee to Allah, it could be fleeing in fear, fleeing from fear to Allah, and that flight, that running is motivated by fear, or it could be wanting to move away from sadness, distress, anxiety, something that kind of troubles the soul into the comforting presence of Allah because Allah is the beloved. So the fleeing could be out of fear, the fleeing could be out of hope, the fleeing could be out of love. The Prophet says, Kun fi dunya sabil. Be in this world, O Abir sabil be in this world as though you are a traveller or a stranger. Okay, let's take the travel bit. Be in this world as though you're a traveller. Anyone from outside of London? Okay, so none of us are travellers in the... Uh, Sharia sense of the word, but let's just say I can't remember what the Hanafi rule is. But if I was, if I lived like say 50 miles away, I'm 48 miles is actually the, the distance, uh, and then coming into London for a 48 plus mile journey would be for me a suffer, a travel which then, according to the Sharia, which then allow, gives me certain compens uh, compensations and ruchas. I might be able to shorten my prayer, for example, and barring Hanafis, I might be able to combine my prayer. Okay? Life, the Prophet is saying, is to be thought of as a travel, as a suffer, 
as a sayr, as a suluk, as a journey. We're traveling from this world to the hereafter. We're traveling from here to inshallah the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Kun fi dunya ka'annaka gharib aw abiru sabil. Be in this world as though you are a stranger or a traveler. And the traveler respects the places that they travel to, but none of those places are permanent homes. They may be temporary stopping stations, temporary service stations, but they are temporary, not permanent. Permanent is home. And the home of the believer is akhirah, is the hereafter, the afterlife. The home of the believer is the Hadratul Ilahiyya, the Divine Presence, to be in the Hadra, in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's not just about Akhirah, it's about Allah as well. Do we not remember the, uh, uh, the Lady Asiya, the wife of uh, Pharaoh, Fir'aun? Husband finds out she's a Muslim, follower of the Prophet Musa alayhi salam. Husband has a bit of a temper. temper. Uh, he's a bit of a rough guy. And so he takes his wife and he buries her in the hot Egyptian sand. Head up. The hot time. For sure, he knows she's going to die of heat stroke heat exhaustion or, or, or thirst, any one of those, but it's going to be a painful death nonetheless. That's the point. I mean, this is a way for husbands not to behave, just in case, you know, it's like health warning. And she is dying. Okay, she's dying. He's enraged. She's a Muslim and she, she's dying. And she makes a dua, which the Quran mentions, towards her, her death on her deathbed, so to speak. Oh Allah, build me a house. Actually, it would be, oh Allah, build me a house in paradise. But there's something even greater than that. You think, well, what could be better than a house in paradise? I mean, you could have a palace in paradise, but let's just say this house is a palace. Oh Allah, build me a house in your presence in paradise <laughs> they say uh, the Arabs say uh, uh, the neighbor before the house when we were moving 20 odd years ago from uh, Leytonstone uh, to Redbridge looking at the houses uh, down that end across the, the other side of the Eastern Avenue uh, we saw houses but we also asked about the neighbors only one time were we told by the occupant, if I'm, and it was, it was a Muslim occupant, if I'm honest with you, uh, currently my, both my neighbours are rascals. One of them is really bad. And the house was okay, and we were thinking of it, but then when he said that, actually, we chose not to. Why? Because neighbours matter, right? Neighbours matter. And the lady Asia. For her, the neighborhood of our house matters, right? 
What's the point of the house if I'm not in the presence of God? It's another way of thinking, right? And that there, that suluk, traveling from the darkness into light, from ghafla, heedlessness of God, to dhikr, remembrance of Allah, which is what the Imam recited, okay? That who are these ulul albab? Who are these intelligent ones? Uh, they are those who remember Allah standing, sitting, or lying down, and they contemplate and ponder, make tafakkur over the creation of the heavens and the earth. And it inspires them to say, Oh our Lord, you haven't created this for nothing. So save us from the punishment of the blazing fire. And then they make a few more du'as that we heard recited. The journey, and this is the believer's job. Okay, This is the job's, job description of the Muslim, of the mu'min. The vocation of a believer is moving out of the darkness into the light that's that should be the job of every human being the quran says the job of every human being must be to move out of the darkness of disbelief into the light of iman and islam but those who allah has blessed to move from the darkness of kufr into the light of iman and islam they still have to continue as Muslims moving out of the darkness. Not the darkness of kufr, of disbelief, but the darkness of ma'asiyah, of sins and disobedience. The darkness of forgetting Allah. The darkness of having the ego, the nafs overcome you or overcome us. The darkness of following our whims which contradicts revelation, our false desires. The darkness of putting obedience to someone else over and above obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The darkness of allowing the heart to fall in love with something more than it falls in love with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the believer's job is to move from the darkness into the light and that is suluk right that is suluk that is spiritual traveling spiritual wafering and we have to do it constantly every minute every second of the day more or less so the believer can never rest comfortable the believer is content but never comfortable with yeah i, I don't have to try anymore i don't have to roll up my sleeves Islam equals rolling up our sleeves to move from the darkness into the light. So far, who disagrees with roughly what I've said? Well, I mean, we might disagree with how I've expressed some of this, but who disagrees with the basic concept that I've said? Who agrees? Okay. Because there's nothing unusual about that. That's just kind of bog-standard basic Islam. And part of that moving out of the darkness into the light, we might say 
based upon the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam, the famous hadith of the angel Gabriel comes to the Prophet they don't know he's the angel Gabriel the Prophet knows and the, he asks the Prophet three questions he comes to the majlis of the Prophet it's a, a famous hadith and it's long I don't want to go into it too much but I just want to highlight something I want to highlight the three questions and the three answers that he gets and link it with our suluk or our journeying from the darkness into the light, darkness into the light. But one side point quickly, Mullah Ali Al-Qari in the commentary in this, to this hadith, in his, uh, in his famous commentary of the Mishkat, Mirqat al-Mafatih, in his, in his Mirqat, which is a famous commentary to the Mishkat al-Musabih, Mullah Ali Al-Qari says, it has been said, so it's not definite or certain, yaqeenan, but it has been said, meaning by some scholars, that this majlis of the angel coming to the Prophet to ask him these three questions, happened about 80 days before the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam passed away. I think he says 80, 83 days. So we're really talking about 23 years worth of prophetic teachings, the teachings from the niche of Nabuwa, going to be summarized in five, three minutes or however long that Mubarak Majlis took. And so he comes to the Prophet after getting everybody's attention, the angel, and says, Akhbirni anil Islam. And so the, tell me about Islam. So the Prophet says, Islam is to testify uh, to La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, to establish a prayer. Give the zakat, pay the zakat, fast in the, uh, perform the pilgrimage and fast in the month of Ramadan. And he said, oh, you've spoken correct. And he says, akhbirni anil iman. Sometimes it's the other way around. And the Prophet said, iman or faith is that you believe in Allah, the books, the last day, the messengers, uh, uh, the divine decree, and I missed the anqadr. And then he says, akhbirni anil ihsan. Tell me about ihsan, excellence. And here it means spiritual excellence because the answer is related to the heart. There are two types of excellence in Islam. This excellence, which we'll call spiritual excellence, because the Prophet said, Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though seeing Him. And it is the aqidah of Orthodox Islam, of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, that with the difference about the Prophet side, that in this world, no one sees Allah, but this is a gift for the believers in the Akhirah. May Allah make us amongst them. So with the difference of the Prophet did he see Allah on the night of the Miraj, and if so, how, with the heart or with the eye, or not? Uh, then the scholars are united, are agreed, that no one sees Allah with the eyes of their head in this world. This is, this is Akhirah stuff. So here when the Prophet says to worship Allah as though seeing him, it means seeing Allah with the eye of the heart. Bi'aynil basira, the spiritual eye. And though you may not see him, know that he sees you. To have this muraqaba, this vigilance that Allah is watching me. Allah hears and sees all things. Right? Now of course that could be like a CCTV camera, but 
I don't think the Quran means it to be like a CCTV camera. You know, the ones I mean that we're doing bad, we're driving too fast down the motorway, then Satnav says CCTV camera, and then we just put on the brakes a bit to get within the law, within the Sharia, right? Or someone's out there thinking of harming someone, but they know CCTV, so they kind of control their emotions and get within the law. Sometimes the muraqaba is meant to be that. that in the Quran, when Allah tells us about Allah is ever watching and, 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 and verses like that, it's me- sometimes it's meant to just simply put the fear of God into us and just straighten us up, sort your life out. But at other times, it's tathbeet, it's reassurance, it's comfort. I remember when I was young, father Rahmatullah was one of the founding people in, of, on the, uh, of Leytonstone Masjid, 1969, was when the masjid was formed, officially. <laughs> and what I used to hear when my, the uncles used to gather, you know, and have their little gatherings and whatever, is someone or the other from the committee uncles always complaining, always feeling underappreciated. And I used to think, Barring being like the Prime Minister of the country, there probably is no harder job and no sadder job than being on the mosque committee. Because all these people are regularly complaining, they're underappreciated, all the work that they... And I, in my mind, I was thinking, wow, my dad, what kind of work does he do? And yet he works, work, works or worked in the DHS. In the evening, he used to be a driving instructor, and then he used to do this mosque committee. And at some point, we moved out of Leytonstone to Chingford. Right? So it was quite a drive. So I was like, wow, but underappreciated. Um, when Allah blessed me to just begin to be a talib al-ilm, a student of knowledge, uh, one of the first things we're reminded uh, in Revelation and from our teachers is, don't worry if you're underappreciated by anyone. I mean, this is nothing to do with mosque committee, but it applies to mosque committee. Because if none of you appreciate my work, but Allah is watching, Allah appreciates, Allah will reward. What's the problem, right? What's the problem? You can all turn a blind eye. But Allah always knows and sees. And that is not CCTV. That's just tathbeet. That's just comforting, consoling to the heart. Right? So these three, uh, these three, Questions eliciting these three answers or responses tell me about Iman. Here are the Arkanul Iman, the basic beliefs that make someone a Muslim. There are more beliefs, but these are the basic beliefs that we have to affirm to become a Muslim. Okay? And then Arkanul Islam, the basic obligatory duties, the fara'id, the wajibat in Islam. I better use the word fara'id because I'm in a hand if you must write. The basic fara'id of Islam, right? Basic obligations of Islam. There are more obligations than these five shahada, salat, zakat, so on and so forth. But they are the, the main ones, right? Can't imagine uh, functioning as a Muslim fit for purpose without them. Especially not, you can't be a Muslim without the first one anyway. And then the third one is something spiritual about the heart. Let the heart be in a particular state or hal. <coughs> Nurturing us this hal, this state in the heart. 
that at one level, that always trying to, the heart trying to remember Allah, that remember Allah sees and hears and knows. So beware and also be consoled and comforted. Higher than that, the heart is filled so much with faith, so much with Iman, so much with Noor, that it is as if the unseen becomes seen. It's as if, not that it becomes. That is the state that human hearts are created for. But they are like the best iPhone out there. But we use our human heart just like those old blueberries, and those old clunky phones that can't do anything but you can just press numbers on them. But the smartphone, right, can do all these amazing things, right? The human heart, we don't even use hardly any of its potential, even as Muslims. It's a smart heart, but we make it a dumb heart. But actually Allah is saying, have a smart heart. In Islam, the science or the ilm, where we are taught the outward rules of prayer and fasting and pilgrimage, we call that ilmul fiqh. Yep, the science of Islamic law, Islamic jurisprudence, the outward actions of Islam. In Islam, the science of what beliefs we should have in our mind or in our heart, we call that Aqaid or Aqidah, beliefs. It has other words as well, but we'll stick with Aqidah. So the obvious question is, what is the science called that deals with these states of the heart? To solve any other offers? Any other names that it's known by? Tazkiyah or Suluk. And even though the second one, the one that you mentioned, my brother, is actually mentioned in a sound hadith, the other two aren't mentioned like that. I mean, uh, the first one, Tasawwuf, isn't mentioned in, in, in the Qur'an or hadith like that. And the word Suluk in this context isn't mentioned in the hadith or the Qur'an like that, per se. But very early on, how early on? Just before the time of Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal dies when? Well, let's, let's start with something that it's good for many of you to know. Not because I want to make you his be or partisanship or brotherly, whatever. But when did Imam Abu Hanifa radiallahu anhu die? In Hijri 1? 150. 150 Hijri. That's really early. When did Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal die? Oh, 242. Just maybe one year too much. But 241. Okay? Kind of 90 years difference between the first and the fourth uh, Imam. It's quite a long time actually. Uh, Imam Shafi'i is born the year that Imam Abu Hanifa passes away. And he has a kind of short life, 204 Hijri.
just before the time of Imam Ahmad, okay, a few decades, we're not quite sure, and during his time, and more so just after his time, this science of the spiritual states of the heart, which is called Ilmul Ihsan, the science of spiritual excellence, as occurs in the hadith, or the science of Tazkiyah, which is a good word, but it's not the most popular word that the scholars use or that the classical scholars use. The classical scholars use either Ilmus Sulu, the science of spiritual traveling or wayfaring, or even more, Ilmu Tasawwuf, the science of Sufism, the science of Tasawwuf. The science of Tasawwuf began to be spoken of publicly and codified, written down in, in books and taught as a subject. Just before Abu Hanifa's time, the science of fiqh was being written down. But then Allah sent Abu Hanifa to the world and by the time he put his mind on it and his efforts with it, uh, on it with some of his students, the way that the chapters of fiqh are done in any school, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali, we follow the way that Abu Hanifa systemized the order, the tartib of fiqh, right? So fiqh was before Abu Hanifa, rahimullah, but he was one of those who just like from A to Z started codifying it thoroughly and over a long period of time. Likewise Malik and likewise Shafi'i as well, and later on Imam Ahmad. And roughly just after that time, roughly, 30 years, 20 years, 50 years, but roughly after that time, it was felt there was also a need to codify, at least in short booklets, the correct beliefs of the Muslims, the right Sunni beliefs. Why? Because by Abu Hanifa's time, a few misguided Muslim sects had arisen. And so they're going around town, various Muslim cities, saying the wrong thing against the Sunnah against the way of the Sahaba and so it was felt that we now need to write these small things and maybe sometimes read them out after the prayer in the mosque so even the normal Muslims, ordinary Muslims can hear and know the right from the wrong. But just before Imam Ahmad's time and during and after you have these names amongst which include and these names that I'm going to mention these are like the four Imams, these are like Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, how they are to the science of Islamic law, of fiqh, these names, or I'm not going to mention many of them, but these names are like these Imams, to the science of Islamic spirituality, which we will now call Tasawwuf, and that's the word I'm going to continue to use. Just before Imam Ahmad, people like Ma'ruf al-Qarhi, Fudayl ibn Iyad, in his time, as he was living in Baghdad, in Baghdad, Bishr al-Hafi. Just after Imam Ahmad, just a few decades after, people like Abu Sulaiman al-Darani, Junaid al-Baghdadi, Sahal al-Tusturi. Okay? And it continues. And the Junaid al-Baghdadi becomes like the Abu Hanifa. In fiqh, Junaid becomes like the Imam of Imams in orthodox uh, suluk of the soul of spirituality in Islam. 
So far, I've said something which no scholar, no scholar will deny. Yes, if we're not scholars and we're a little bit ignorant, we will deny. If we have some bits of misguidance and misinformation, even if our overall orientation is Sunni towards Quran and Sunnah, we might deny. And there are uh, groups of Muslims today, um, since the kind of uh, 1900s, the last 150 years, we've had groups of Muslims, well-intended, ascribing themselves to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the way of the Sahaba and the way of the early Muslims, uh, but they will reject the word tasawwuf. And if you keep the word tasawwuf out and you explain tasawwuf, just like I explained in the beginning, they'll nod the head and weep and wahwa and mashallah. Right? But once the word tasawwuf gets in, it's like khalas, he's a deviant. And I saw that brother give him salam, so that brother must be a deviant. And then someone gave that brother salam. We're getting that. that can happen. Otherwise, scholars are completely fine. All right. So that is really what I've said. This saluk, this moving from the shadow into the light, from disobedience to obedience to Allah, from forgetting Allah to remembering Allah, from being ungrateful to Allah to thanking Allah, from the heart being in love with something other than Allah to Allah's love just dominating the heart from the world becoming the thing that I am chasing even if it means through haram means to the world becoming pretty insignificant it's a means to a goal I have to use the world I have to be responsible in the world but the world isn't my goal dunya isn't my goal yes I'm interested in how Morocco are doing against Portugal part of the dunya right as I left literally as I was shutting the door uh, I heard the people in my house say oh, like that so I knew someone had scored so I actually thought hold on let me go back in I had actually stepped out of the house and I went back in and it was one nil okay. fine take an interest in it there is a buzz in the air but come on football is nothing significant even if Morocco wins and it doesn't matter how many Muslims do sajda on the pitch. It's not, it's not significant. But it can be a buzz. It's okay to be a buzz. It's okay to have that national interest. It's okay to love the game itself in that sense. But no more than that. Not for the emotions to be so wound up upon it. I can't remember when it was, but it was in somewhere right towards the mid or late 80s. But when... England got knocked out by Argentina in that famous Maradona so-called hand of God thing. The next day on LBC radio, this is like, was it 86 or something like that, 86. Next, year, next day on LBC radio, <clears throat> the speaker was talking about how it's now been proven over the last 15 years of research and data that domestic violence in household goes up, goes up when England lose. I was like, subhanAllah, you could never imagine the emotions could be tied. I mean, as a nation, we are, we are, we know we have the art of losing. All right. We, mashallah, we are, mashallah. Okay. We've perfected the art of losing. All right. But to that degree, so both ways, 
something that captivates our heart that much, which is not, which is not Allah or linked to Allah, it's not really the way of a believer. It's not really, because our heart is too precious to be captured by something other than Allah Jalla Jalalu. We have to have that amount of self-respect. So enjoy, be fascinated, love the beautiful game, but just keep it in its place. So what I'd now like to do is I'm going to read one or two statements just to end my talk because I've got about five, ten minutes max. Uh, and I'm going to pick on Imam Ibn Taymiyyah because for two or three reasons. One, it is still claimed that Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, this scholar who died about 700 years ago in, in Damascus, was anti-Tasawwuf. He was anti-Sufis. This was, this was said by Orientalists back in the uh, late uh, 1800s, the 19th century, and until very recently in non-Muslim Western Islamic studies used to be taught. And unfortunately, some of our brothers and sisters, following some, inshallah ta'ala, well-intended mashayikh scholars of today, of today, a handful, say the same thing, that all this to solve it's all nonsense. Nothing like that in Islam. And all Sufis, people who ascribe themselves to this tasawwuf, they're all dodgy at some level. Okay, various levels of dodginess, but they all have the big D, big dodgy, big deviant on them. And what that does is two things. It causes schisms amongst Muslims because there are most Muslims are, and certainly most Muslim scholars are totally okay with it and they're saying what are you talking about and it causes schisms it causes people to start wagging their finger against their, their fellow Muslim and it causes hearts to split which is never a good thing but perhaps more importantly it corrupts the knowledge the actual revealed knowledge it changes the knowledge that's probably more important so let me quote Ibn Taymiyyah and this is a standard way that he speaks about tasawwuf okay so this is not like i've just quoted a line from him and, and he has so many other no this is just standard stuff from him and it's in a collection of his his fatwas over over his lifetime were eventually collected into um like 36 volumes okay majmur fatawa uh, yeah he did yeah i mean he wasn't the scholar who wrote the most but he was one of those scholars one of those 10, 20 scholars who really had a phenomenal output. And in the 11th volume, as it is in print now, uh, it's the volume called uh, Tasawwuf. He didn't, he didn't print the volumes, like this was done like in the 19th, uh, 20th century. But it's called Tasawwuf, where all of his fatwas and his little treaties, his little booklets and some larger books about Tasawwuf, are there. The volume before that, volume 10, is Ilmus Suluk, the science of spiritual wayfarer. They could have both been called Tasawwuf, part one, Tasawwuf, part two, but for some reason, uh, the compiler, who was a scholar in himself, a humbly scholar in himself, decided to call it Ilmus Suluk and Tasawwuf. In Tasawwuf, uh, volume 11, uh, pages 17 to 18, let's just bit by bit. And end the talk, and inshallah, uh, Mufti Abdurrahman will, will take over, inshallah. Time. So he's 
he's asked this question. So, what is Sufi? What is uh, Sufi? What is the soul of Sufism? What is fakr, spiritual poverty, which is another word for the soul of uh, right or wrong, good or bad? So this is how he kind of begins to address it. I mean, he says some things before, but let's skip that bit. He says, "Huwa fil the Sufi, in reality, is a type of Siddiqeen, is a type of higher saint, like a higher wali. He is the saint particularized with zuhud, worldly detachment, and ibadah and, and worship according to his exertion or efforts in it. Who is this Sufi in general? He's not being specific, he's just generalizing. Generally, those who are known as Sufis, they are from the higher awliya. Who are the lower awliya? Every Muslim. Every Muslim. Imam al-Tahawi, famous Hanafi scholar. Died three, something, something, three two one, three two four, three two six, something in the three twenties. Yeah, barakallahu fikum. He says in his famous aqidah, which all Sunni Muslims accept. Okay, it's really, ideally, this should be the standard aqidah. You know, in, in my opinion, and Allah knows best. It, it, it's just so beautifully constructed. Maybe not arranged in you know, the best way, but beautifully constructed. And the words are just so uh, redolent of, oh, that's how revelation kind of states it, more or less. And there's a kind of a fitri thing to it as well. That's my personal belief. He says, Al-Mu'minun kulluhum awliya rahman. The believers, all of them are awliya of God, of Allah most merciful. Why? Because the Quran says, Inna uh, awliya Allah, the believers of uh, the, the awliya of Allah, no fear shall come upon them, nor shall they grieve. They are those who have, uh, in, 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 uh, how does it go? Yeah, those who have iman, and have taqwa. So to the degree that some human being has iman and taqwa, and by definition, every Muslim, even the most sinful Muslim has Iman and Taqwa, even if it's just one little speck, then that is his awliyaship with Allah, which is not much. Okay, but it's there. This, his waliship. It's not the ideal waliship. And the more Iman and Taqwa a person has, because now they're fulfilling the fara'id, the obligations, and... As the Prophet said that Allah said, and my servant doesn't draw closer to me with anything more loved by me than the fara'id that I have enjoined on him. So the first and main, in fact, the main thing of our time today in the journey of love, of muhabbat to Allah Jalla Jalaluhu is Ada'ul Fara'id, fulfilling the fara'id. The outward fara'id like prayer and fasting, the outward fara'id, some adab and akhlaq are, are obligatory. Outward faraid in terms of mu'amalat, in transacting how I buy and sell, marry and divorce and things like this. I can't have a big beard, right? And then in my business, I, I cheat and I'm doing haram. And because generally the beard is sunnah, right? 
and cheating and doing those type of things in business is haram, right? We don't want this upside down Islam. We want an Islam that is meaningful and that Allah is pleased with, right? So, going back, uh, going back to the point, the Siddiqun, okay, they are, uh, so everyone is the awliya of Allah, but the awliya, but the Sufis in, gen- in general, Ibn Taymiyyah is saying, it's not making a difference, they are like kind of generally the higher awliya. When we hear about them and the names that I mentioned just before, Junaid Baghdadi, so on and so forth, they are generally from the higher awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he says, after saying that, look, scholars differed in the early days about was the Sauf and Sufism okay or was it a bit dodgy and deviant? He says this People differed about their way. One group condemned the Sufis and Tasawwuf. Historically true. What they condemned, or what specific to soul for Sufis, they kept, that's a different thing. But a group condemned, uh, had con- uh, condemned the Sufis and the Sufis. And they declared that the Sufis are innovators, are deviants who have left the fold of Orthodox Islam, of the prophetic guidance of Sunnah. وَنُقِلَ عَنْ طَائِفَ مِنَ الْأَئِمَّ فِي ذَلِكَ مِنَ الْكَلَامَ هُوَ مَعْرُوفِ And this was related by a group of the scholars and their words about this is well known. It's well known that a group of, uh, of a pocket full of ha- early scholars had real problems with what they saw being spoken of as tasawwuf, as Sufism. وَتَبِعُهُمْ عَلَى ذَلِكَ طَوَائِفْ مِنْ أَحْلِ الْفِقْهِ وَالْكَلَامِ and they, these people who condemned Sufis and Sufism, and they were followed in this condemnation by pockets of jurists and theologians. In, just before Imam Ahmed, there were some notable, a handful of notable voices from the great Imams who had a big problem. Okay. So that was one group Ibn Taymiyyah says. وَطَائِفَ And then another group غَلَطْ فِيهِمْ and then another group went to the opposite extreme, Ibn Zaymir says. Another group erringly claimed that they, the Sufis, are the best of the people and the most perfect of them after the Prophets. But he says, and this is really the, if you get Ibn Taymiyyah's where he's coming from, then it kind of the whole thing becomes sorted for those who were a bit confused. But both of these views or both of these extremes uh, in this issue, in this matter, are reprehensible. They've, they've just gone overboard. They've kind of the second one has over exaggerated the worth of the Sufis in general. And the, and the first one has really undermined their, their value. So he says, Wassawab, but what is correct? So this is Ibn Taymiyyah. Wassawab, annahum mujtahiduna fi ta'atillahi kamajtahada ghayrahum min ahli ta'atillah. What is correct is that they are people who exert themselves and make efforts to obey Allah 
Okay, there's a bodily exertion, but there's also an ijtihadi exertion. Okay, a scholarly thinking exertion. Like others who exert themselves in obeying Allah. Which is a just thing to say, nothing phenomenal, it's just, that's right. And then he divides them. Then he gets down to a little bit more distinction. فَفِيهِمْ أَصَّابِقُ الْمُقَرِّبِ and of the Sufis, right? Of the Sufis, this is really nice. Amongst their rank are the Sadiqun Muqarrabun. And anyone who has a brief, even a vague familiarity with the Quran, know that really after the Prophets and the Messengers, والسلام, there is no maqam or station higher than the Sadiqun Muqarrabun, those who are drawn closer to Allah, right? Those who are Qareeb. Those who Allah has given that qurb, right? Because really, that's the whole point of being created. Qurb, mahabba. It's in praying, bowing, ruku, sajda is important. And we have to do it whether we're doing it good or bad, inwardly or out, it has to be done. But it's meant to be done with ma'ana, with meaning. What meaning? Qurb and mahabba. To draw closer to Allah. To love Him and be loved by Him. Not just to love Him, which would be a thing, right? But to be loved by Him. Definition of sadness, definition of despair, to give love, to receive no love in return. Right? That's kind of a disaster for our lover. But Allah, different. And that's why really, tasawwuf, and I can say Islam generally, because we don't need to get hung up on the term. Remember, al-ibra bil-haqaiq wal-ma'ani la bi-al-fadi wal-mabani. We can just say the path of Allah, the path of Islam, the spiritual path, or just Islam itself is at-tahabbu bil-Allah bima yarda. Becoming beloved to Allah by doing what pleases Him. More than ever, it's important to put love into the equation. It is the thing that gives meaning to the whole concept of Islam, of ibadah, of life itself. If we present to our children or others Islam as a set of rules of do's and don'ts, once upon a time, that worked for most people. It worked. But the last time it worked was probably my generation. From then on, it started to fall to pieces such that by the time of my children's generation, it doesn't work for so many reasons which are not their fault. Nor is it necessarily bad teaching of parents because they themselves haven't been taught put ma'ana, meaning, into things. Islam, the sunnah in particular, is about teaching us ma'ana in surah, teaching us meaning in forms. The sunnah doesn't 
the sunnah gets us to recognize some people are black, some people are brown, some people are white, some people are yellow. Some people are male, some people are female. And I'm not going to get into the other gender distinctions that we don't really recognize. But those are surah. Those are just outward forms. But the ma'ana, the substance of the male or female, black, brown, white, is their, how they are with Allah, how they are with people, how they are with, when they hear revelation. How they are inside. Right? And the whole of Islam teaches us that. The Prophet says, when any of you stands to pray, hadith sahih, let him wear his best dress, for Allah has more right that you beautify yourself for him. Why? Because ma'ana, if I'm going to go out of my way to a wedding, I mean, if hopefully you're not like me, because I probably would go to a wedding like this. And when I got married, uh, at that time I had two trousers and I had a I had two shirts, one of which was not wedding material at all. Um, I used to run and jog in it and everything like that. So like kind of how I was on Thursday was how I was on Saturday. <laughs> Except that I did have a bath and I combed my hair in and everything like that. I put a turban on my head. But most people will dress up. That's the right thing to do, right? So if we're dressing up for a wedding, for an interview, for whatever... Allah has more right that we beautify ourselves for him. Because there's a ma'ana. It's all about the ta'alluq, the connection with God. Right? So, I'm going on. I, I, let me just finish this thing from Ibn Taymiyyah. So he says, Of them there are the sabiqun, so let's leave the Arabic. Among them are the foremost drawn close to Allah, according to their level of striving. And among them there are the muqtasidun, uh, the middle course. The companions of the right hand. And these descriptions, muqtasidun, Ahlul uh, Yamin, these are Quranic descriptions. Each of these two groups, there are those who strive but get it wrong, or those who sin and repent, or those who sin and don't repent. There are, of the Sufis, there are the Dhalim, Dhalim Binafsi, uh, those who sin and therefore wrong their own selves. And these are the three. Categories of Muslims anyway. Ibn Taymiyyah is saying these are the three categories of Sufis, but they're actually the three categories of Muslims according to, according to the Qur'an. And then he says, And this is kind of important. But there are those pockets of innovators and heretics, handfuls, not large numbers, but handfuls, of deviants and, inner, and heretics who ascribe themselves to Sufis. I am a Sufi. I am upon Tasawwuf. I am upon that spiritual Tahabbu Billallah, Bima Yarda, becoming beloved to Allah by doing what pleases Him. However, the verification, verifying scholars, the, the, the major scholars of Tasawwuf say these people, whoever they are, are not of us, are not on our path, okay? Uh, and Ibn Taymiyyah has in mind something that Al-Ghazali had in mind at that, you know, 200 years ago, which is some people are saying, when we speak about divine love, Allah's mahabba, you know, we have reached such a high degree in love. 
we are excused from praying and fasting. Our ta'alluq with Allah has gone higher than that. And though they don't say it exactly, they, they basically say it's gone higher than the prophets who are still praying and fasting and who had that connection with Allah. So these were heretics, right? And there were people similar to them, but maybe lesser in their deviation. These are the people who Ibn Taymiyyah had in mind, as Al-Ghazali had in mind 200 years before him. And all of the people of Tasawwuf said, the Imams, Junaid and all these people said, no, these people are not on our path. And in some cases, they may not even be on Islam. That's how bad it could be. And then finally, Ibn Taymiyyah says, uh, and then he says, uh, and, uh, and he gives an example. And it's a controversial example, but I, I, I'll mention it anyway. So, uh, from these heretics and deviants, and then Ibn Taymiyyah, taking one position of his school, Hanbali school, says an example of this is a, a particular personality in, in the fourth century of Islam called Al-Hallaj. Highly controversial. So whilst Ibn Taymiyyah uh, and uh, Abu Ya'la and a group of the Hanbali say, yeah, this, and they follow in this Junaid al-Baghdadi and many of the great Imams, as Ibn Taymiyyah says, uh, As-Sulmi, Abdurrahman As-Sulmi, in his Tabaqat Sufiya, Khatib al-Baghdadi in the Tariq Baghdad, they quote that he was off. He was majorly off. But the flip side of that is, other scholars, Sufis and others, like Ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi, one of the Imams of the Hanbali school, uh, and others like him said, no, Hallaj was misunderstood, and he was a wali. But it doesn't matter because Hallaj is gone, right? He will not affect our lives. And if you ever come across Hallaj in a book, either you are a deep scholar who has investigated this, not this matter and Allah has put into your heart this view or that view, or you're a deep scholar and said, well, they are a people who have passed. They will not be accountable for what we do and we won't be accountable for what they do. As regards to anyone else, sukut, silence. Oh, Hallaj, yeah, I heard Ibn Taymiyyah said something about him. I heard Junaid say something about him. I heard Ibn Qudama say something about him. But you know what? It kind of doesn't change the price of bread. And Allah hasn't asked me to, to take a stance this way or that way. This way is safety for us. But just to know Ibn Taymiyyah saying, there are some dodgy people. And he gives what he thinks is one example. And it could be right or wrong, that example. And they didn't just say it off the top of their head. There are kind of reasons for it historically and some of the utterances. And, so, and then he just says, he just finishes by saying, And then after this, the Sufis, they split up into various branches such that the Sufis are of three categories. And this is where, where I'll end his saying. He says, Sufiya al-Haqaiq, Sufiya al-Arzaq, wa Sufiya al-Rasm. Sufis are of three categories. The Sufis of true realities. I mean, these are the genuine Sufis like the Junaids and the Sahals and the Ma'rufs and radiallahu anhum ajma'een, right? Who really become the Imams of, of right guidance for us even till today. And... The, and the orthodox Sufi teachings of today trace their pedigree back to these type of imams, okay? 
So there's a Sufi, the Sufis of true reality, the genuine Sufis, Sufis just to earn a living. Uh, if you're in majority Muslim lands, even today you might still find some of them, <laughs> okay? And they do well, they, they earn a good living, okay? And then there are just Sufis in appearance, okay? Uh, they don't earn a living, their appearance for two reasons, either charlatan appearance, because they want to earn a living, or actually uh, they want to just imitate the way of the righteous. So they have kind of good intent, but they are just, they don't have the, the substance. Perhaps they would like the substance, so we hope that, as the Prophet said, you will be raised up with those whom you love. Right? So when we love the awliya, there's some hope there, right? Uh, but they could also be people just for the show because they, they're more closer to the Sufia Arzaq, just the, the fake Sufis trying to earn, just trying to con people out their money for one reason or the other. But it's okay. Just like we get bad Muslims, just like we get bad Sunnis, we get bad Sufis. Some are worse than others. But that doesn't mean the whole of Islam is defunct. The whole of Orthodox Mainstream Islam, Sunnism, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is wrong. Likewise, that doesn't mean the whole of the Sawwuf is wrong. It's just that. And how do we sort out the wheat from the chaff? We make in this day and age. If we were living a hundred years ago, I would say different. And if Sheikh Abdurrahman or Dr. Salim want to uh, correct me in this, then I'm 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 very much open to correction. But today, when we learn this science, just like we learn fiqh, just like we learn when we learn this science, either we're learning the detailed rulings of the heart to develop the heart, or we're just having good spiritual companionship, try to make sure that the person who is claiming to soul wolf and teaching to soul wolf, from whom we're going to open up our hearts to him, he is sahib sharia. It could be a she as well, but he's a person of sharia in this day and age. Not because that is a condition, the condition is that they should be following the Sharia. Otherwise, forget it. But in this day and age, let them be an alim of Sharia as well. Why? Because there's just a lot of issues and it's, there's more confusions that scholars are still trying to sort out in this time. So that's that. There is no reason for alarm bells to ring. I personally feel, so this is not fatwa, my personal opinion can be taken or left. It's more important to reach out to people's hearts with the concept more than the name. And it's more important that we live something of the concept more than, more than just preach it. We need to be people actively trying to step out of the darkness into the light and have some kind of saluk in our lives. And that's it. To sawuf is tahabbu bilallah bima yarda. It's becoming beloved to Allah by doing that which pleases him, but it's actually rolling up the sleeves. One of my shaykhs, Abdullah Ta'ala says, today this tasawwuf pass rests on three pillars. Ada'ul Fara'id, oh, oh, let's flip it around. Tarqul Haram, abandoning the Haram, which means fulfilling the obligations actually. Tarqul Haram, Dawamul Dhikr, doing as much Dhikr as we can constantly, as much as we can. And suhba ma'asalihin, and to have good spiritual companionship, not the companionship of an alim necessarily, who can give you fiqh and aqidah, unless of course that alim is 
a person of tasawwuf and suluk, and then you've got the kind of cream of the crop. As regards to the four imams of fiqh, all of them were people of tasawwuf. Okay. Um, and the one that we know most about in the books of Tasawwuf is Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal for no particular reason other than he was there at the time things were being written down and crystallized. Otherwise, these people were people of inward and outward law of Allah. The outward law called fiqh, the inward law called suluk, tazkir, the hal, the maqam, all those things. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wassalamu ala mursaleen wa alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Sorry for going like 10, 12 minutes over. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously, to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially for example the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules and at the end of that inshallah you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind, you can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.